Welcome to Double Take, where we explore the art and science of making good decisions. I'm Matt. And I'm Anshul. And Anshul, we have a pretty serious topic today, and so I thought we should start with a bit of a light-hearted question. Can I ask you a question? Go for it. Anshul, why did the vegetarian break up with her boyfriend? <laughs> why? Because he was a meathead. Oh, no. Did you get this one from ChatGPT? I did. Yeah, I did. But but I didn't get this next part from ChatGPT. Why was he not so sad that she broke up with him? Why? Because from the moment he learned that she was vegetarian, he had a feeling that being with her would be a missed stay. Oh, man. These are terrible. We should, <laughs> although I actually have my own collection of terrible jokes, we should just do an episode where we go through all of that. Yeah, should I start a career in stand-up comedy? For me, I think we have just publicly proven the answer is no. So let's uh, swiftly move on to business. Our question today actually hits pretty close to home for both of us, I think. It's one of those questions that many people ask themselves on a very regular basis these days. And that question is, should I eat meat? Mm, this one's great. I've been, I've been asking this question my entire life. So for context, and, and you already know this, but I was brought up in a very vegetarian household. And that's because by background, I am Indian and a particular subsect of Indians, which is very, very strictly vegetarian to the point where, you know, many of my older relatives won't even eat from a kitchen that has ever had meat cooked in it. They'll feel nauseous walking past the smell of meat being cooked. Some of them won't even eat root vegetables like garlic, carrots, onion, because harvesting those vegetables involves pulling the plants out of the ground, which kills the plant. And so you know, 30, 20, 30 years ago, being vegetarian wasn't as common or well-known. And so I've been getting this this question asked to me from probably since preschool. Wow. I, I remembered as you were speaking there of a Simpsons episode I once watched where I think someone was referred to as a level seven vegan or a level 12 vegan, something like that. And they wouldn't eat anything that cast a shadow. <laughs> I think I remember that episode when, when Lisa goes vegetarian. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> I, I find, I find that, that one really interesting with the, with the sort of like ethical reasons for, for not eating meat baked into sort of religious background. I always wonder if there's a bit of a chicken and egg thing where, you know, things that end up in religious rules, cultural rules. I think often have really uh, interesting long-term, like for example, health backgrounds as well, that sort of make their way into into cultural rules. Do you have a Do you have a view there? Yeah, my my theory, and I haven't researched this, but my guess is this: the, the so the the religion I guess I'm technically part of, although I'm not religious, is called Jainism, and the roots of it are actually very old. It's it's almost you know pre-religious kind of a philosophy. A way of life, and the, the the core principle behind it is something called ahimsa, which means nonviolence. And the foundations of those theories, I guess, evolved into multiple religions in the future. Some of it turned into Hinduism, Buddhism. But yeah, pure pure narrative speculation on my point. But if they started off that, you know, a few thousand years ago, nonviolence is important. Then obviously, killing animals and eating them is not great. But we do know that. We need some kind of animal product in our diets. You know, simple vitamins, even B12 is one of them. Uh, we can't get without animal products. And so they would have been forced to come up with some kind of compromise back then before they had supplements. And that compromise might have been, we're going to consume dairy, which doesn't involve killing the animals. And we're going to go really hard on harm minimization for everything else. So we're not going to kill anything. We're not going to eat any meat. We're even going to cut out the, the root vegetables. And what they might have done as well, if, you, if you've heard, 
In India, cows are treated like God. It's actually illegal to harm a cow or kill a cow. If you go there, there are just cows wandering around on the streets. And they're not just wandering around. If you go there in the morning, people will find random cows on the streets, drape them with garlands of flowers and pray to them. And these cows will, you know, be in, in India eating rubbish off the road and people will be following them around trying to worship them. So potentially the compromise they landed on was, okay, we, we do need animal products. We're going to use dairy, but we don't want the cows. So we're going to make the cows gods and we're going to stop killing everything else. Wow. Make the cows gods. I, I, I'm telling you, we're, we're in, in for a very interesting conversation today because my background is almost the polar opposite of, of what you just said. So my story is vastly different. I come from a very long line of huge meat eaters. Uh, so my, my, you know, I grew up as a, as a young child in South Africa in a small community that goes back to far back into the Afrikaans history. And they've pretty much never even heard of vegetarianism. It's just absolutely not a part of the culture. It is not an exaggeration to say if I were to order at that, at that period of time, sort of a vegetarian meal or ask for a vegetarian meal at a restaurant, they would have brought me a steak with a side salad, something like that. Just not heard of. And of course, things have progressed and things have changed. Um, but that's, that's the background. And sort of older people in, in my life from that background still think completely that way. They, they cannot get their head around the concept of, of not eating meat. I've actually, I've actually nevertheless tried both vegetarianism and veganism at various points in my life for, for ethical reasons. So I've never done it for more than a couple of years in a row. I think the, the longest was two years, but I actually did run into some of those health issues you mentioned from doing it wrong. So probably the, the B12 deficiency. And eventually that caused me to pivot back and I've not stopped eating meat since then. Well, do or what kind of issues did you run into? I know you you're a bit of a triathlete as well, right? So did you approach it in a structured manner? Did you did you sit down and plan out your diet quite carefully? I did I did not. I think I approached it like somebody who had done tons of endurance sport and had been fortunate enough never to be injured and thought I was invincible and thought, I'll just cut it out. I, I can do it. And so I started to get tingles. I started to get sort of weird things with my sleep and actually eventually got a couple of joint injuries, which even today have not fully gone away. Oh, well. And I can't completely blame it on the, the diet, but I mean, 25 years of not one injury introduced pretty stricter diet and then bam, injured. I do think probably there was some sort of link there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And there's also, I think, an element which a lot of people don't think about, which is one, is your body even used to this? Like I've been vegetarian the vast majority of my life. And two, is there a maybe some kind of weak genetic or evolutionary component where if my ancestors have been doing this for at least a few thousand years or we've been raised like this or even culturally, the particular combinations of foods we eat have reached some kind of equilibrium where it does work for that particular population. Is that relevant to totally you like you who's come from a long line of meat eaters? And none of those factors are in play. For sure. And I, I think like as a, as a species, we don't know the answer to all of those things. And certainly you and I don't know the answers to all of them. But we've thought a lot about this question and not just along that dimension, along several others. So I'm fairly confident we're going to get to some sort of resolution by, by backing forth a little bit here. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think starting from default vegetarian actually changes your lens on this whole topic quite a bit. So I can say definitively that I am irrationally averse to eating meat. Like I'd, I'd push through it if I had to. If you left me on an island with no food or anything else, I, I would probably 
try to hunt or, or die of starvation because I couldn't catch anything. But I, I would do my best to find some meat to eat. And I think that makes being vegetarian really easy. You know, the things which I just said, you know, from a social, cultural point of view, even the dishes and the combinations of food, doing it in a way that's, you know, both nutritious and tastes good and kind of comfortable and familiar, it makes it really, really easy. I imagine for you going vegetarian or vegan from having eaten a lot of meat your whole life would have been quite hard. Surprisingly, it was not, but that was only because of where I was living at the time. So I did when I was first at university, sort of like a, suddenly in a, in a place where I had full control, was, was surrounded by a bunch of lefties at every university <laughs> I went to. And so that, that was quite easy, but doing it at home for sure would have been very difficult. It's just, it's just not how that culture operates. I'm interested to hear why, and maybe we'll get into it, why you think it, it's sort of irrational that your cultural background disposes you to a certain view of, of eating meat and not eating meat, given the sort of other unknowns we talked about, you know, have we sort of evolved in some way or even just, you know, ep epigenetic signaling, for example, within a particular culture so that it, it kind of makes it makes makes sense to stick with that with that cultural diet. I, I don't know, but I would be interested to dig into those views. Yeah, I think, look, ultimately, it's a very values-based decision, right? The, Eating meat has pros and cons, and there are a lot of different arguments which get very tangled up when people discuss this. So, you know, some people will talk about the ethical. You know, eating meat is wrong. You're causing harm. I think that's indisputable. You're causing suffering and harm to other living and often relatively conscious beings. Then there's the environmental. You know, farming livestock is terrible for the environment. You, you have large parts of the Amazon getting chopped down to make way for soybean farms that can then be used to go feed cattle, which are incredibly inefficient when you think about the amount of resources it takes to raise one cow. And then related to that, you've got economic so if we took all of those soybeans, we were feeding the cattle and just fed them to the humans, then we'd solve world hunger, right? There's so much food being fed to animals, being pooped out and not being fed to anyone. And at the end of the day, you get, you know, after many years, you get this one cow, which gets chopped up and maybe it feeds, you know, I'm actually not sure, but 10 people for two weeks. I don't, I don't know how, how far a cow goes. And more recently, I think health has become a lot more popular. It's a little bit controversial. There's some evidence-based stuff we can point to. Uh, the World Health Organization actually a few years came out, came out with some recommendations. And I think this one's actually the easiest to agree on, although I'm, I'm sure many, many people will disagree with me. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot in there. There's a lot of nuance, but certainly as sort of like the four main factors that people mention, I agree. Those are definitely them. Ethical, environmental, economic, and health. I do I ever think there are one, potentially two other factors that are actually really big motivators, but not mentioned so often and definitely more controversial. And I think we should, we should address them briefly. The first one that comes to mind is this sense of sort of identity or group solidarity. I know that a lot of people make diet decisions based on wanting to fit into a particular group to signal certain things. And I even get the sense that some people, you know, who potentially wouldn't give up meat because they're afraid of, you know, health consequences or any of those other things, still kind of go along with it just to be part of the group. And actually, I actually remember a story. You and I almost started a, a business at some point on sort of like a vegan foods website. Do you remember that? <laughs> yes, I do. That, that one's yeah. still in progress. <laughs> it's just on the back burner at the moment. Yeah. Well, as part of that, we, we researched a bunch of communities and I personally was shocked by just to see how many large 
very deeply committed social communities they were all around sort of various niche diets and didn't seem to be attached to any of those four things that you mentioned. It was just this weird community of people banding together. Yeah. Yeah. Those, those places are wild. The, the tribalism in them is absolutely insane. I, I literally just read the posts for entertainment now because somebody will go in and they'll share something, you know, well-intentioned. For example, you know, I've, I've recently found out that the, the croissants at Coles are vegan by accident, right? They, they don't use butter in them. They happen to use canola oil, which, you know, probably not great for your health, but they are accidentally vegan. And the first five comments will be people thanking them and rushing out to buy things from Coles. And then it'll turn into a shit show because somebody will dive in and say, I can't believe that you as a vegan would buy plastic wrapped food from any kind of supermarket. And within 45 minutes, you'll have 200 comments and people will just be going at it. I love watching this. It's it's incredibly entertaining. But you can very, very clearly see that there's a lot of, I guess, identity wrapped up in all of this for a lot of the people in there. Yeah, for, for sure. And a lot of that is also mixed in with marketing things. So for example, things that are, you know, accidentally vegan are also accidentally really cheap to manufacture and accidentally really expensive on the shelves. And so there's a, there's a lot of stuff at play there, but certainly it's one of them. A related point actually goes back to what you mentioned about your, your sort of family background, sort of religious and cultural beliefs. You know, some people have dietary rules baked into sort of philosophical frameworks, philosophies of life, religious frameworks that actually can't necessarily be assessed in isolation. So you can't say, you know, why do you or do you not eat meat and then provide an argument pertaining to any one particular set of facts because... It's actually just one part of a much broader, very complicated sort of framework for living. And that does touch many, many parts of the world. You know, diet is something that's deeply culture ingrained. I don't think it's it's what we're talking about here. It's a debatable whether it's sort of a rationally tenable stance to be able to say, oh, I just do it because of all the other stuff I do. But it's certainly a big reason why some people choose to or to not eat meat. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think those are two really important factors, because even if they don't play out in the rational argument for should I eat meat or not, they play out in the way they play out in determining the stance people take and then the arguments they use to justify it in the future. Because as we know, people will they'll start with what they feel first and then they'll work backwards to find the, the justification for that instead of working forwards from the evidence and the, the logic which they have. Confirmation bias at play for sure. We should we should definitely dig into those four those four and maybe more points in detail. But I thought actually what might be worth doing is just stepping back and asking ourselves what makes this question so you know difficult and politically inflammatory in the first place? You know, if we if we can lay out some clear factors, why can't we just assess the question against those those factors and come to an answer? And I think there there are a couple different things at play here that are really important for this question. The the first one that that I think is, is salient here is on the difference in values. Not only do people have different values across these different dimensions, but they're also often morally charged. And that means people can't make a decision and think that it applies just to them. They think it must apply to everyone else as well because it's a moral issue. You know, it's not like, do I like chocolate or not? That's your decision. But it's, it's should I do something that maybe, you know, harms the planet or harms an animal? That's a, that's a type of decision that you think should apply to everyone. And so immediately this puts this question on a, on a highly inflammatory, sort of politically charged footing. 
Uh, so that, that's a, that's a, that's a huge call out here. Yeah, that's I, I never thought of it that way. That spectrum of how much I believe a value only applies to me versus how much I believe it should apply to everyone. But it's a really, really good point, not just in this context, but especially in this context, mm-hmm. because you're right, the, the further along that spectrum you are towards, I think everyone should do this, the less able you are to, I guess, be convinced that it, it it's a fairly you know, personally subjective values-based decision. I'm personally of the opinion that morality is relatively subjective, and we, we can get into that later, but I suspect a far easier threshold is am I internally consistent? Which I, I think most people probably don't pass in this context either. I, I, I agree, and I'm definitely keen to get into that point later. But that point on internal consistency is is really important, and it actually leads me to the, the second thing that I think is difficult about this question, and that's that different individuals could kind of be internally consistent when looking across these different value dimensions that we talked about, but can actually hold different mental models in their minds for what those things mean. There is really sort of a difficulty in information asymmetry and understanding. So for example, what I mean by environmental impact could be very different from what you mean when you say the word environmental impact. And because they're such big, complex topics, it's really difficult to to marry them up and, and sort of get a clear picture of what each of us mean. And that's even just compounded by the fact that there is just incomplete background data and information about what each, or what each of these things are. You know, that they're, they're each of them in and of themselves are enormous topics that as a species, we don't fully understand. And so certainly any individual can't fully understand. They will never have all the background data. And I don't know what background data you don't have. You don't know what background data I have. I don't have. And so, yeah, from that perspective, again, it makes it really difficult to assess effectively how we feel across each of these dimensions, but then even more difficult to have a sort of a conversation or argument with someone else about each of them. Yeah, I think you're, you're right. It's It's... Like all interesting questions and probably everything we'll ever talk about on this podcast, there's there's incredibly incomplete data and that's why it's such an interesting decision to make. So I suspect what we're shooting for here is, you know, we've, we've talked about a few different elements. There's the ethical lens, environmental, economic, health. There's how, I guess, group, you know, solidarity and identity tie into how people feel about these decisions and how culture and religion, again, how they make them feel and what that does to their justification of what they choose. And then it's it's confounded even more by the fact that, you know, people assign morality to a lot of these factors and they believe everyone in the world should do the same as them because it's it's ultimately a moral value, something above every all of us. And then we have no we have some data, but it's very, very hard to get concrete about a lot of it. So I think what we're trying to get to is in in the absence of clear data and clear value judgments, even what are what are the key questions and kind of core elements we can focus on to get to a reasonable answer for an individual? Yeah, for sure. And there, there won't be a one size fits all answer to the issue, but I think we can be clear enough to get closer to the truth. And there there will be in this whole sort of mess and hodgepodge of questions, nuance, that there will be some sort of falsity we can cut out. And I think we'll, by the end of it, I think, you know, get to a clearer picture of what's more likely to be the the sort of better approach and better stance. And potentially, you know, I don't know where this is going to go, but I might reveal myself to be a huge intellectual hypocrite by the end of it. And maybe you will change my mind and I'll sort of 
follow your your footsteps but i think let's let the let's let the analysis take us where it needs to take us yeah yeah for sure so maybe let's start off with the ethical component because i think that's probably the most contentious and my view i'm i'm undecided overall on if it makes sense to treat morality as least subjective or if we should all agree on some kind of you know at least as humans objective version of morality you know it, it kind of depends on the level of abstraction which you're talking about if we think about the universe as atoms and particles floating around then the morality doesn't make sense and it doesn't exist but at the level of humanity maybe it does make sense that we can all agree we shouldn't cause harm at the very least to other things yeah i can actually agree with you on that as a starting point you know we could have a 10 hour long conversation on the foundations of morality and not get anywhere but as as a core principle to say you know, there are at least a few core elements that are so widespread throughout humanity that we can basically take them as as granted and go from there and i, I think what you just said is certainly one of them you know ca- causing harm for all else being equal causing harm is worse than not causing harm uh, so i i can buy into that and, I, and i'm happy to sort of keep my mouth closed on, on any other objectivity or subjectivity questions of morality yeah yeah i i think i'd i'd agree there but i actually think in the case of eating meat we can we can use a framework where the burden of proof is way lower and what i mean by that is internal consistency right because regardless of what we say about a objective morality across all of humanity i think the vast majority of people hopefully everyone agrees that disagreeing with yourself contradicting yourself is a bad thing and if you can't if in some context you're doing something which says you know meat, eating meat is okay but in another context you're actually revealing that your true preference is eating meat is immoral or killing animals is immoral then i think it's important to identify that contradiction and understand like which one am i going to pick and i think the burden of proof there is far lower than us trying to debate is it wrong to cause harm because there's all kinds of arguments people will go down there you know you go into the forest the lion eats the deer he's causing harm that's how nature is so if we think about just internal consistency a question i've always liked asking is would you kill every animal you ate yourself if i you know before every meal if i brought you the the goat and gave you maybe not a knife but but you know in some cases a knife would you kill it and then eat it that is a tricky question a little bit concerned that it's mixing in other factors and the the how is quite important there so for example i in very abstract terms might press a button in another room knowing that painlessly at some other place on, on the earth as a consequence an animal would die and that that would be the animal that i ate and i could imagine myself doing that although i couldn't imagine myself at least for a mammal you know going on a hunt taking out a rifle and and shooting it and i would have to think about if, if that's a moral inconsistency or actually it's just a, t- a thing of of consistency with with the other things that I would you know that I'm constituted to do. I, d- I don't know. Do you do you do you have a do you have a view here? So I've got a couple of interesting stories around this. First, I think I think it's fine actually. If the the, the question of how is really important, as you said, I think the threshold for how should be the way the animals you purchase from the store. Are killed depending on the country you're in that can be very very different so if you're in a muslim country or if you're, you're eating halal or even kosher meat 
the animals are bled out. So, you know, the, the throat is partially cut, the, the, the heart remains pumping until it bleeds out fully, and then the, they're kind of cut up and, and sold into the shop. If you're, you know, just eating non-halal or kosher meat, in theory, in Western countries, they're meant to use, I think it's called a stun gun. It's, it's something which knocks out the animal entirely before they slaughter it, and it should, in theory, be fairly painless. But you also have to consider the entire life they had before that, which is usually not in very good conditions. And so I think the moral question to ask yourself is, would I personally be okay with inflicting the same level of harm to the animal before I ate it? And if the answer is no, you've identified some kind of moral inconsistency within yourself and you should ask yourself, am I just okay with somebody else doing the dirty work for me? But internally, my own moral compass, however subjective that may be, does believe that this is wrong. I'm just not really doing much about it because it's so far removed from me. Yeah, I buy, I buy into that. And when I, when I actually did some research on what is the state of existence for you know, farm animals, livestock, in the US where there's some data available. I think a lot of people have this image that you have happy animals living in green pastures and that's that's sort of like the norm. And you don't feel so bad if that's the case. You know, they're living sort of fairly normal lives, I guess, and there's a little bit of badness at the end when potentially they're killed, hopefully painlessly. But looking at the the stats, I was actually quite shocked to find so there's the World Animal Foundation earlier this year published a, a number which said 99% of farm animals in the USA live on factory farms. And if you just do a Google search, what does a factory farm look like and what are the conditions there? It is anything but sort of just being relaxed and enjoying life on green pastures. It, it's often a very, very hard and, and sort of difficult existence. So in, in, in that frame, I think if you're saying, would I kill an animal, meaning would I subject the animal to the same life that it, it lives, you know, all things considered, as the animal that I find in like a supermarket? For me, the answer there, I mean, it's, it's got to be close to no. It's got to be, it's got to be very close to no. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's the case for most people. And so... I actually have a lot of respect for people who will go out and hunt their own meat. Because again, I think most people wouldn't even do that. They wouldn't even go be able to kill an animal in the wild. There's a story of Mark Zuckerberg, actually, in 2011. He randomly posted on Facebook, I just killed a pig and a goat. And <laughs> the, the story behind that was he does these yearly challenges. So, you know, I think one year he learned Mandarin, one year he learned, you know, how to how to build an AI. And this one year he decided for this whole year, I'm just going to kill everything which I eat myself. So he, he was personally killing pigs and goats, I guess. And he felt it was irresponsible to not remember that the animals he ate used to be alive. And I guess it was a, a bit of a personal challenge. Pretty much I, exactly in the vein of the question which I just asked. Yeah, I usually don't like to take my moral lessons from Zuck, but <laughs> you know, it would it would be it would be mistaking the messenger for the message in this case. And as far as the message goes, I, I think you're right. You know, it is it is better that somebody can do that. It's more consistent that somebody could do that to eat the meat than to eat the meat anyway and say that they couldn't do that. There are some weird sort of contradictions that come to mind though. You know, what about fishing, for example? So why is that different? People go fishing even just recreationally and they kill fish that they maybe don't even eat. And very few people actually feel particularly bad about it. You know, you don't have people rioting in the streets about the old man sitting on the rocks fishing. 
but it's an animal nonetheless. It's killing nonetheless. Is that is that defensible, that difference? I think all of this comes down to the level of comfort and exposure you've had to the thing. You know, in, in Africa, you've got child soldiers who will you know, be trained from a young age to kill other humans. And after a while, they just become desensitized and it's normal to them. I've spoken to doctors who've worked in the emergency room and they've seen so many deaths after a period of time that, you know, people just become a process. You know, you come in, you've got XYZ symptoms. We're going to put you through a particular process. You may make it, you may not. And so I think the aversion that people have to killing mammals is just because it's not common. Fishing, if you think about it objectively, is, I mean, from a life point of view, they've, they've had a pretty good life. They're, they're out in the wild. But the way you die is pretty terrible. You get lifted out of the water with a hook in your face and somebody rips the hook out and then you suffocate to death. I mean, there, there, there might be there might be some sort of necessary sl- sliding scale of suffering capacity here because like, e- even the most diehard vegetarians are like stepping on ants accidentally yep. and... You know, killing, killing thing, killing the bacteria in their body every time they brush their teeth. There's a lot of stuff going on, and you have to draw the line somewhere. But, but yeah, fishing it feels, you know, just because they don't have faces or whatever it is, it does feel, you know, they seem conscious to me, and it definitely does not seem like a fun way to die. Yeah, and I, so much of this is so subjective, right? I, I remember in primary school, I actually convinced a friend to turn vegetarian, and the way I did it was. He he loved dogs. He had just got on a dog. He loved dogs. And I asked him, why is your dog any different to all the other animals you're eating? And that, that must have resonated because he went home. He told his parents he's become a vegetarian. They weren't happy at all. This was in the early 2000s when it was not well known. And, you know, they, they were worried about where he'd get his protein from and, and all of that. But it's so hard to establish consistent logic here. If you go back 200 years ago, it was perfectly fine to have a slave in your house, right? You just buy them. And, you know, they, they were other humans, which today we think is horrific. But, you know, back then, depending on where you were in the world, people genuinely believed there was a difference between their own race and whatever race they'd managed to enslave. Yeah, I mean, not even going back 200 years, going back 30 years ago into, you know, where, 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 I, was, where I was born, I was born in South Africa and... I mean, I was born at the back end of apartheid South Africa. Yeah. I think everyone everyone knows, I hope everyone knows what apartheid was. The legacy is still there. But I mean, people who are non-white couldn't vote. They couldn't go to the same schools. They couldn't use the same public transport. They couldn't live in the same areas. They didn't have access to their medical sort of benefits. They were treated completely like second-class citizens. And they we're still feeling the legacy today. And it actually reminds me, so I mean, that, that was fairly recent. About 10 years before that, Peter Singer, who's probably I would say the most famous living moral philosopher today, wrote a book called The Expanding Circle. And this is on the, all the, on the concept of expanding empathy and how our circles of empathy have expanded throughout history, starting from, you know, I only care about myself to the family unit to, you know, extended family or a tribe and sub- subsequently larger and larger and larger. And his basic argument is, you know, he believes it's arbitrary to restrict that principle of equal consideration of interests just to our own species versus animals in the same way as it's arbitrary to cut it off between different races or between different ethnicities. Um, and he's kind of he's kind of got like a, a fairly strong point. If, if you even just think about how closely we're related genetically to other species, two, two humans are extremely closely related. A human and another mammal are also extremely, extremely closely related from an evolutionary sense. 
we're, we're sort of the same thing. I could very much imagine an alien coming in and looking at life on Earth and basically saying, oh yeah, this is the genetic information. This cow, this, this person, it's like so close from genetic profile, it's basically indistinguishable. And they wouldn't really notice. So from that perspective, it's a, it's a bit odd that we, we draw the line at like this artificial species boundary. Well, I wonder how far you take it. From, from memory, yeah, like mammals are probably all within, you know, two, three percent variation. But plants aren't even that far away either. They're, I'm pretty sure plant to human is something like 70 percent in common. Yeah, it's, it's, it's super close. So who, who knows? But I mean, genetic, genetic information aside, if... If we were to try and justify it in terms of, you know, humans are much more complex and intelligent than the other animals. And so, yeah, it it doesn't make sense for us to like kill and eat, let's say, great apes, but we're fine doing some sort of dumb animal like a fish. I think we're at a point now where we have to consider the the scenario in reverse because, you know, I I made a very corny joke with ChatGPT at the beginning of this chat. That's already outdated with with GPT-4 and who knows what's happening in the next year. But I don't think it's that far-fetched that we could get to a point where... We do have sort of super intelligences or, you know, very sophisticated artificial intelligences who see our intelligence in the same way as we see a chicken's intelligence. And if we're going to use intelligence to, to justify who eats what, moral uh, logical consistency would then say that those AIs would have the right to kind of do what they want with us. And I'm not sure that's a world we want to live in. No, definitely not. I think, yeah, the argument always works when you're in power, right? Yeah, 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 that's, that's right. I think there's always going to be a bit of a contradiction here, though, because like you said before, with the ants, you know, even the most diehard vegan or vegetarian is causing harm, killing things, whether intentionally or not. And I think in the world you live in today, it's almost impossible to wander around without causing harm to it. And I I own a, despite being a vegan, I, I own a puffer like a a down jacket i've got a pair of leather shoes i eat all kinds of processed foods and medication that probably involve something getting killed somewhere i i heard recently about this new new weight loss medicine that was originally for diabetics you might have heard of it it's a eucalyptus sitting it out with their brain juniper (laughs) but I, i found recently that they the source of this medicine is a very particular kind of lizard and so it's there's a worldwide shortage now because it's been approved for weight loss use as opposed to just the diabetics but somewhere out there there's some guy saying like we need more lizards like farm the lizards and it's really easy to think about or forget about that you know the the dyes used for your clothing the the particular kinds of medication you eat the particular kinds of vaccines you get a lot of them involve you know hurting or killing or testing on animals and so you're always going to be somewhere on that scale of you know reduction versus like harm causation and yeah i mean i think i think that's that's true for sure but it does feel like it's getting to this point where they're sort of like very small distracting things that are distracting away from the real issue which is significant potential harm reduction from something that is actually quite clear and we do understand just by pointing towards sort of like fringe cases or confusing cases but if, if, if i had to actually take a step back and sort of like i don't know plot the suffering on a, on a graph and look at this, the size of the bars and what I could do with them. You know, the, the, the smaller things and the small contradictions kind of become something I can live with um, because they're, they're kind of not the highest priority thing for me right now to focus on. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I agree. I, I think the, the point out of all of that is you're always going to be causing some level of harm. And the goal is not 
arm elimination, which is the narrative often pushed by, you know, the extremists in these groups. But the goal is probably minimization. Yeah, that, I think that's right. And I think something that most people can agree on is that if we held everything else constant, all other things equal, health factors, environmental factors, you name it, whatever you care about, if you could achieve those same outcomes and do it in a way that's got less harm, that is something better. That's the preferable path and kind of where we're morally obliged to go down that path. And I think in the, in the case of factory farmed meat versus even other meat alternatives, we, we are very close to that position where as long as you can, you can afford it, for example, to at least choose the meat source or the meat type in a way that still meets everything else you want, but doesn't involve at least the very worst cases of animal suffering. That's that's the ethically obligatory thing to do. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And we've got, you know, for example, lab grown meat now. That's the, the the price of that is dropping on a per unit basis exponentially. I wouldn't be surprised in the next five to ten years if that actually began to make a very material dent on total meat consumption. You know, it's it's way, way cheaper, more ethical, better for the environment, and it's almost a no-brainer here, and you get the best of both worlds. Yeah, I love if you if you look at it from the first principles perspective. Lab-grown meats makes makes so much sense because you know why grow the hooves and the the thinking brain and you know everything else just to sort of carve out the steak. Why not just grow the steak? It, it does it does bring up a couple misconceptions though, and I know we love to talk about misconceptions in this in this in these conversations. Um, one that always strikes me as so weird is if you think about a lab. And the conditions there, it's sort of super clean, pristine, you know, hygienic. And compare that to a farm where you have basically animals up to their knees in their own muck. And just based on those two things, you know, if I were to give you a hamburger and say, go choose one of those locations to sit and eat it in, you would not choose the farm. It's, it's gross. It's full of bacteria. You'd want to go sit in the clean lab, the clean room and eat that hamburger. Yet when it comes to people's initial gut reaction to the meat itself, people somehow feel like the stuff that comes from that clean lab is kind of, you know, they get an, a yuck factor, a gross out factor, and, you know, meat that comes from a farm feels very normal. I find there's a lot of cognitive dissonance in in that point, not necessarily related to the ethics of it, but it's a huge misconception or, or at least a sort of contradiction that pops up into people's minds. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think there's, there's other things to consider with lab-grown meat in particular. So, for example, unknown unknowns, right? We taking the animals out of their muck. Oh, whoa, what, what are the negative effects of that? Maybe the bacteria are actually really important for some reason. Or maybe we just got the DNA sequencing, you know, a tiny bit wrong. And, you know, we're in, in eating that meat, you're, I don't know, somehow in ingesting particular strands of RNA that could turn into, into a virus or, or cause you some kind of harm. It's something which isn't fully explored yet. I'm pretty bullish on the long-term future of the approach, but in the short term, like any production process, I think there are going to be bugs. I definitely, definitely agree. I would nevertheless still try it and would make investments in lab-grown meat companies because I'm very bullish on on this whole space. I think I think it nicely wraps up this ethical part. I mean, you, we could again, we could write books on this. We could, well, we couldn't write books on this. We could read books on this. We could talk about them. <laughs> Maybe one day could write bad books on them. But it, it's a big, it's a big topic. People need to to think through it and and decide for themselves. But but certainly your your lens that you raised of consistency and of all else being equal, minimizing harm seems to point in a very strong direction. And and that's one that I think it feels we're, we're in agreement on. Let's, uh, as far as possible, sort of avoid the worst cases of suffering at the bare minimum. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Uh, 
I think they're, they're two broad enough lenses that you can apply in the absence of a ton of data and almost entirely with you know, just some small self-awareness of your, your internal moral compass to decide where on that spectrum do I personally feel comfortable sitting without contradicting myself, which I suspect is all that really matters in, in the context of morality here. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Well, I, um, I'm feeling guilty enough. Should we move on to the, the next point you mentioned? Yeah. Yeah. So environment. If you just think about this from first principles, barfing large animals is so inefficient. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen a cow in real life, but they're really big and they take many years to get that big and they eat a lot, like a lot of food every day. They have four stomachs and they pretty much just eat all day. And now the, the food which they're eating is also typically grass. And so if they're eating that much, they need a lot of land to go graze on, they need additional food supplemented, and over many years of constant eating every single day, you, want, you eventually get to a cow that's big enough for a handful of humans to eat. And just the amount of energy and resource loss in this whole process is insane. It is just ridiculously inefficient. And I mentioned before, you know, we, we farm all of this food we chop down rainforests to farm this food. We chop down rainforests to make room for the cows to graze. And at the end of the day, we get a very, very small output. So I think one of the stats I found was plant-based meat substitutes. Uh, this is plant-based, not lab-grown, have on average a 50% lower environmental impact than, than actually growing the meat itself. Wow. I, it's, it's, it's pretty crazy. You, you mentioned that, that energy efficiency point, and I, I looked up some, some data of what I could find on Our World in Data. And there's this chart here on energy efficiency of meat and dairy production. And what this means is if you consider the total amount of energy that goes in as feed into the production of these products and compare that to the total amount of energy that we get out of the back end of it. So we're well, not at the back end, we get out of the, the final product, <laughs> the, the animal itself. So in, in the meat, you know, what is, what is the percentage change? So what is the percentage of energy in the final product that was actually put in as input? And I was absolutely shocked to find that for beef, which is the worst, the answer is 1.9%. So that means that of all the energy that the cow consumes in its entire lifetime, we get less than 2% of that out as energy when, when we so purchase the animal. And that's, that's just the meat itself. Then it goes through a whole cooking process and a manufacturing process and so on. And so the, the actual effective number is even lower, but less than 2%. Less than two percent of what the cow eats ends up as, as energy for for people. The other other meats are better, but not drastically. I mean, I think lamb was at four point four percent, pork was eight point six percent. I've got here, poultry thirteen percent. Even just milk was twenty four percent. So less than a quarter of all the energy that goes into producing the milk actually ends up in the milk. And so there's a massive drop off in in energy there. Yeah. Well. This is, so you're telling me if I took a hundred calories worth of soybeans and I fed it to a cow and we got the equivalent amount of beef out, we would have 1.9 calories worth of beef. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly right. Yeah, that, that's ridiculous. I'm actually pretty impressed by how efficient milk is then. I mean, 20, yeah. 25% is not a bad drop off. Just thinking about the number of kind of chemical processes that happen the whole way through. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. I'm also not not I'm pretty impressed, but I think milk again has has a lot of sort of other unseen consequences like the the cruelty in the production. I know, you know it's not what we're talking about here, but it's it's certainly something that needs its own 
analysis, I think. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so I think there's this pure kind of first principles energy efficiency argument, which is, you know, it's almost a no-brainer, right? From an environmental point of view, we have limited natural resources and, you know, a population that is still growing. It'll probably stop growing at some point in the future, but at the very least, its demands are growing. And given the finite resources we have, this is arguably not the most effective way for us to get the most out of the, the land and the environment in order to sustain this population. Yeah, although I might, I might challenge that for a bit. I mean, so obviously there are other trade-offs to be made that will get to like the nutrient density that ends up in the meat and so on. And so there are certain like non-environmental trade-offs, but even for the, the purpose of just energy efficiency, you know, one question I hear fairly often is actually, you know, does that actually matter or would it matter if we had plenty of resources to go around? And, you know, there are many people who think, the human footprint on Earth is actually still relatively small, and with new technologies and you know renewable energies and everything else, this is not potentially something that we actually really need to worry about that much. We, we, we potentially solve it in other ways. And the other, the other more sort of like direct economic argument I hear is that okay, well, it's fine, but it's it's just baked into the price, and so people can pay for whatever they want. So if I want to pay for two percent energy efficiency, who's who's going to stop me from doing that? I mean, we're doing lots of inefficient things all the time for the sake of other benefits. We we mine Bitcoin, which even just the Bitcoin <laughs> network alone uses more electricity than the whole country of Portugal when I last looked, and that's probably even more now. Uh, we we take plane trips to Sweden to go skiing in the Alps, and you can't tell me that I, I'm allowed to be you know burning up dinosaur fuel to to go skiing in the Alps, but not not doing something sort of equivalent for feeding myself. So I'm, I'm not fully convinced, even by this drastic number, that energy efficiency alone provides a concrete answer. Yeah, it's a good point. I think with these arguments, the question is always, are they negative externalities? So people, is it not getting fully baked into the price? Is there some damage being done usually to the environment or some shared resource through this production process that nobody is accounting for. So for example, you know, in, in the case of farming livestock, we definitely know that has a big impact on the environment, right? Methane from cattle production, literally cows farting, is actually a significant contributor to climate change and global warming. And that doesn't get baked into the price because at the moment, the farmers are not having to pay you know, carbon tax for their, for their cattle. But I think you're right. I think the bigger thing here is actually potentially land. Uh, and again, there are, there are negative externalities here. You know, the, there are populations around the Amazon rainforest which are chopping down the rainforest illegally in order to farm crops that will then go to feed, feed livestock. And the, the problem with this is that while, you know, we, we can come up with new technology to improve our energy, energy efficiency and you know, maybe people are willing to pay for it. From a land point of view, we're, we're definitely starting to reach some constraints, at least when it comes to agricultural land. Land which is good for hosting livestock, good for growing crops, because it actually takes a lot of work to keep getting value out of that land without making it barren, you know, drawing all the nutrients from it and, and essentially nothing can grow there anymore. Yeah, I mean, I, I partially agree. From from just the perspective of the numbers, they can sound really scary. So I, I looked up based on your, your mention of like land and resource usage, what, you know, what are the stats around this? And in Encyclopedia Britannica just from last month, 
they published a number of, of the sort of land usage for, for livestock farming. And it's pretty drastic. So they estimate that around half of the planet's habitable land is already used for agriculture of some sort. And of that, 77% is used for grazing cattle, sheep, goats, other livestock. And so we're talking about something close to half of all, all the habitable land is used for livestock farming. On the face of it, those numbers sound really scary. Those are big numbers. But then taking a step back, the question is, is that necessarily a bad thing? I mean, I agree with you, cutting down the Amazon is a bad thing. But that's not the same question. The question is the total amount of land usage. Is that necessarily a bad thing to have livestock there? You know, if if we could do it in a way that didn't involve cutting down the Amazon and just putting those livestock in, you know, places where people aren't living already, but the, the conditions are good, would that kind of be a worthwhile trade-off? I don't necessarily see a very clear answer. And I, I also don't see the clear sort of comparison being made to the next best alternative. So... Uh, you know, if we, if we got rid of all the livestock farming, then what, what is that land used for? Is it other agriculture? Is that necessarily much, much better? What are your, what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, I think the, the, there's a zero-sum game when it comes to land. And all land necessarily, if you go back that far enough, was you know, uh, used by the environment in quotes. You know, some kind of ecosystem or habitat or 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 forest, whatever it might have been. And you know, if we if we got rid of all of the animals, we we don't even have enough humans to go fill that land, and we probably <laughs> never will if we look at current population growth trajectory. So no, we we don't necessarily need to get rid of all of them and make room for the humans. That's not the problem here. I think the problem is the the zero sum game. Where right now, I think we there is still pressure to expand arable land, land which we can use to grow crops and farm livestock. And that pressure is coming at the cost of the environment, which we're having to clear in order to do that. And so if you were to free up all of that land, maybe, I don't know, I haven't thought this through, but the right answer might be, should we reforest it? Should we you know, try to push it further back towards whatever state it used to be in? Mm. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm playing devil's advocate a little bit here. I actually, actually, definitely you know, do agree that it's the it's the right answer. That drastically too much land, as you said, is being used for you know livestock farming, and there are certainly better alternatives. I just don't think that it's as significant a problem necessarily as these numbers make it seem. But but morally, I I, I agree there are better things to do with that land, and if cutting down livestock farming would free it up for those things, it seems like something that would be sort of obviously better for, for the environment than the current state of things. So what I think is more important is, the, is what you mentioned in terms of the greenhouse gases and, and methane emissions, because that's actually very substantial. Again, I looked up a stat here, and the UN estimated quite recently that collectively livestock farming contributes to more than 14% of all man-made greenhouse gases. So methane, carbon, everything, 14%. So it's a, it's a significant chunk of, of greenhouse gases. And again, they've done the analysis based on different different types of, of food. And once again, beef ranks right at the top there as one of the worst contributors. To me, to me, that is very significant. Yeah, that's that's huge. And as far as high impact areas to focus on, you're right. Again, I haven't, I haven't researched very deeply, but you know, if we freed up all the land, even if we were to try and reforest it or slow down you know, forest clearing, I suspect the impact on an urgent issue like global warming would not be anywhere near as high as 
what you're telling me here, 14% of all man-made greenhouse gases. Like if we could eliminate that, again, I don't know the numbers, but I'm pretty sure most countries start hitting their, their carbon emission goals a, very quickly. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, if you, if you, they've actually presented the data here in terms of servings of food and kilograms of greenhouse gas. And what's striking is for the worst sort of produced beef, the most high impact beef, one serving, so like a steak, would produce 15 kilograms of greenhouse gas. So imagine walking around with a 15 kilogram dumbbell or something. It's it's not a it's not a super lightweight. Yeah, and, and that's what you're producing every time every time you're having a steak. Yeah, that that's huge. And I mean to to put that into context, what else do we have here? Chocolate is surprisingly high. I, I would never have thought it'd be that high, but the worst produced chocolate, one serving will be five kilograms, yeah. and a serving of chocolate is not very big, right? I, I don't know what the recommended serving is, but it should be, I don't know, it should be 50 grams maybe, maybe even less. You you shouldn't yeah, be eating less. hundreds of grams of chocolate. Oh, what else do we have here? We've got, I mean, down the bottom, you've got nuts, beans, tofu, which interestingly are a lot of, they're, they're very similar to the feed, which goes to feeding the livestock. And, you know, nuts on the graph, the basically zero kilograms. Same with beans, same with tofu. The worst produced tofu is only slightly further along than the zero kilogram mark. Yeah, it's it's, it's a drastic, drastic difference. We're talking about more than a 15x difference here. So yeah, if you care about greenhouse gases, methane, protecting, getting to net zero, you know, no one could argue that this that this graph that we're looking at, which we'll, we'll link in the, in the notes, presents a sort of fairly big <laughs> lever to pull. So it feels it feels like we can definitely draw some conclusive points here, right? So, you no, know, I've, I've I've played devil's advocate a bit, but it's actually quite clear that environmental impact is enormous. It's really really large, and anything we can do to really reduce the amount, especially of of beef, will have a very outsized impact on on the environment. And so, I personally am sold on 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 this one. It it feels like the direction is clear. Yeah, yeah. Again, I mean, actually, probably not again, differently to the ethical argument, which is probably more internal values based. I think here, the only value you need to have and agree with is that you care about the environment and slowing down global warming. And if you do, then reducing meat consumption is a no-brainer in particular beef. Yeah, especially because you can imagine a pathway of doing that that doesn't involve making other big sacrifices. Like, People who say eliminate fossil fuels, for example, yes, obviously reduces the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, but fossil fuels are used for lots of very important things like construction and so on. But reducing the number of cows walking around in a field, you can imagine a very sort of simple way to, to do that that doesn't involve all those other external effects. And so totally, totally on board with what you've just said. The next one was the economic impact. And when I say this, there's maybe two levels to think of it at. There's the personal economic impact, which is, it's not super interesting. It's just, you know, meat is probably more expensive than non-meat food. And so if you, if you want to save a tiny bit of money, then it might make more sense for you to, to eat less meat. But yeah, well, as we said, it was baked into the price earlier, that energy efficiency. And so people are paying paying for that 1.9% efficiency in a, in a, of, a, of a sort of beef steak. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But what, what I'm more interested in here is probably the world economic impact and that you know the you know questions around you know poverty you know the income distribution across the world and how do we tackle questions like that and you know again back to the cow the amount of food and water that we give to the cow i don't know the numbers but it could definitely save a lot of people from starvation in the world there's just so much food and water and resources and even land that goes to these animals 
and gets converted down to 2% of what it could have been. And you know, that, that meat doesn't even get eaten by the people who need those calories the most. I don't know, but if, if I were to guess, I suspect if you took all of those input resources and just redistributed them amongst the world as calories, you would solve world hunger today. Yeah, you're, you're always dropping these sort of like very strong intuitive hunches and I've been fact-checking them lately and they've been right every single time. So <laughs> you mentioned this and I actually did do sort of back-of-the-envelope fact-check and I, I would say this is probably the most shocking thing I've found in everything we've talked about. So the, the back-of-the-envelope check that I did was just how many calories do people need, the, the whole human species currently, and roughly how much are we feeding to animals? And they don't have the full data here, but basically it goes something like this. From people's perspective, we've got 8 billion people alive today about 2,000 calories per day on average, you know, less for really young children, less for old people, but about 2,000 calories per day. And so that's 16 trillion calories daily needed to sustain the human race, basically. If you look at livestock, so animals, the, the numbers I found there, there's something like 30 billion land animals living on just factory farms today. And the amount of calorie consumption, it varies by animal, but it's, it's on the order of a thousand. It's not drastically different from humans. And so multiplying those two numbers together, we get calories needed per day for all factory farm animals is around 30 trillion. So even just the feed we're giving to livestock is basically twice as much as we need to feed humans. And this is not, you know, replace the steaks that you're eating on your plate with, with the animal feed and keep everything else in your pantry. No. This is throwing out your whole pantry. This is every single thing that a human needs. Clear the supermarkets, just fill it with the food that we're currently feeding to, to farmland livestock. That's sufficient calories to feed everyone with, with some despair, probably. I, I found this just absolutely shocking, this, this back of my envelope, a little scratch here. Yeah, that, that's absolutely insane. I wonder, I wonder if you play out that thought experiment or how the calories do actually end up getting distributed. So, you know, tomorrow we, we clear all the farm animals, we plant, assuming as possible, you know, actually we, we, we don't reuse them. anything. Yeah, we, we don't, we don't plant, plant anything. anything. So that's yeah. actually, there's even more upside there if you start reusing their land to farm crops, but you, yeah. you take the inputs we already have into livestock feed. Where does that go? I guess those farmers now need somewhere to sell it. The price of all of them drastically drops because now there's a, actually, no, well, it does because we've got an oversupply of calories. It might not be the best thing because where I'm going with this is a lot of farms start to go out of business because yeah. there's an oversupply of calories and we don't need as many, but whichever ones are left should be producing very, very cheaply. And, you know, the, the, the markets which do need it most should now be able to purchase that food very affordably. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, 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 obviously there'll be sort of lots of other things to think about here, like nutrient density and perishability of foods and, you know, all, all those other things. And yeah, I think if you just think about people eating, you know, what do we like to eat? We don't like to eat what the cow is eating. We don't like to eat this, this tofu, grass, hay, sludge mix. But you're, you're totally right. From first principles, even from distribution, today we're, we're producing feed. We're transporting the feed to farms, and then we're transporting the final product from farms back to people. You could just skip one of the steps in that triangle and go straight to the people. And it's, you know, it's the laws of geometry. That triangle, the hypotenuse is smaller than the sum of the other two sides. And so you will definitely have a, a smaller distribution cost if you just take it directly to the people or all the other sort of negative things aside. So it's a big one. It's certainly, it's certainly a big one. Yeah. 
I I wonder if does this imply that if you if I today started eating less meat, or you maybe, given I eat not, is there some marginal impact that I'm having on the world? Oh, I think the laws of supply and demand must, right? Maybe there's like a bit of a, a delay until sufficiently many people start doing the same such that at least one, one, one cow. fewer cow exists <laughs> in the world. But, you know, it it, it, it must. I think that the, the market is not fully efficient, but supply and demand is, as a rule of thumb is basically right in the long run. And uh, yeah, I, c- I can't see it not working out in this particular case. Yeah. Yeah, perfect. And I guess that's all that really matters here because what, we, what we're looking for is in each of these, I guess, ultimately actions which an individual can take to have some impact in, in one, of the, one or more of these directions, economic, ethical, environmental, that will have some kind of meaningful impact. Yeah, I- agreed. And there, there probably are other economic impacts as well. Maybe some of them are negative, maybe some are positive. It's actually hard to know based on the data. So for example, if if we believe that eating lots of meat is unhealthy, then reducing consumption might result in better average health outcomes at a population level and so reduce healthcare burden and healthcare impact and several things of that nature. But nevertheless, I think if you look at just the the level one sort of first order term here, which is just the the amount of calories and and what you need to produce to to sort of achieve those and get those to people, I th- for me that that's sort of like a very compelling argument that you want to do that more cheaply and and going via an animal is not it's not the right way to do that. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm glad you mentioned health because I think this is a really interesting and I guess often perceived as controversial one, but potentially one of the ones where we do have a reasonable amount of evidence at least for some kinds of actions which you can take. And we, we can probably be pretty conclusive about some of them. Uh, yeah, I agree. I think as long as we're sort of clear on the definition of health, and we should say up front, the state of nutrition science is sort of very basic. We're just getting there. You know, in, in other areas of science, we can answer very specific questions. You know, in quantum mechanics, we can predict you know, very small, fine, like outcomes of experience down to the 15th decimal place. And in, in nutrition science, we can't even tell someone what percentage of carbs or protein or fat they should eat. It's completely a different ball game. But I, but I think it, there are some definitions of health that are a bit clearer, and we can make some specific recommendations. So you know, as an as an example, my my fiance is very serious into triathlon. She trains a ridiculous amount, thirty hours a week, and to sustain that training, she eats a very specific diet, so like high carb, sometimes high sugar, to sustain that performance. And the interesting thing there is. In our culture, somebody who looks fit, who looks like lean, we pers- we assume that they're healthy because of, of what they look like and, and how our culture works. But is that really the best definition of health? Because we, we know that there are other people who, for example, lead highly restrictive, calorie restrictive diets, don't look as healthy, they look a bit, even a bit gaunt, but there's evidence that they will live a lot longer, more than likely to live a lot longer, avoid chronic diseases. And so we actually have to be quite clear on the definition of health we're talking about here. There are lots of meatheads in the gym who are eating tons of protein. They look phenomenally strong and fit, and but are they are they healthy? Yeah, this this idea of I guess what healthy looks like visually is really interesting because it's actually changed so much over the years as well, mm-hmm. right? We maybe over the last 10, 20 years with the with the growth of social media, I think we're in a bit of a snowball where. <laughs> you know, the the more ripped you are, the lower body fat percentage you have, the the healthier you look. But if you go back 20 years, if you look at you know, professional sports people 20, 30 years ago, 
they actually looked very, very different. And I think there's a reasonable amount of evidence, like neither of us are doctors here, but you know, from what I can tell, you know, high protein diets, putting on a lot of muscle, maintaining that muscle isn't necessarily good for a long lifespan. It, it results in basically a lot of new cell growth, cell replication. And we know that the more you do that, the more you're increasing the rate of you know, DNA errors as you're producing new cells, which contributes to aging, which is why a lot of the people on the heavily calorie restricted diets, you know, while, while they don't look great, they're actually slowing down a process like that over their entire lifetime and getting a, getting a longer potential healthy life out of it. Yeah, it, it's, it's, that's right. But then there are also second order effects like those people who get older, like they get old with lower muscle mass or lean body mass percentage, maybe slightly lower bone density. And then when they fall, their hip breaks and the other person's hip wouldn't have broken. And so, you know, they don't get cancer, they don't get diabetes, they don't die of that, but they fall and they break their hip and and that kills them. And we don't necessarily, in our sort of level one you know, conception of health, we don't think about those things. And so that, that's why we, 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 personally, when I think about health, I think about this concept of a long health span, which is anything that's going to allow you to extend the time frame for which you can live a life doing all the things that you want to in life. And that, that, that includes things like freedom from chronic diseases like cancer, heart disease, diabetes, Alzheimer's. But it also includes the physical ailments. Like you don't want to be able to, you don't want to not be able to stop yourself from a fall when you're older. And so I think it's a very broad view of health. Sort of several several books I've read pointed to this definition, but for me, that's at least the definition I have in mind when talking about this topic. Yeah, yeah, I fully agree. I think the the conclusion to draw here is that this is a very complex, multivariate problem, like all the interesting ones, and we we're probably fairly immature in the data and the science around decision making here, and so we, we're going to have to try and find some core principles to come to conclusions from which aren't necessarily going to be too data or you know, kind of frontier science-based. Yeah, agreed. It's, it's chipping away at what we do know. And you know, we, know, we don't know nothing. We do know eating cyanide will kill you. And so we do, we do know some things about nutrition, but we don't yet have the full story. The, the, <laughs> this, this question actually draws me back to my days in academia. So I, I did my master's on optimization theory and even part of a PhD on it. And there's actually a really first principles framing of a question like this in terms of optimization theory. And so imagine, imagine you had an objective function called health. So something you want to maximize health, whatever it means, you want to maximize this thing. And as an input or an option space, you've got a set of diets. So anything you can feed into the, the function to maximize this thing you called health. And it's actually a necessary truth or a theorem of optimization theory that in this context, you will be able to maximize this health thing more if you've got a less restrictive option space. Because as soon as you restrict the sort of number of levers you have at your disposal, you necessarily either get to the same total maximum or a smaller maximum than you could for health. And so from, from that lens, it seems like naively, well, obviously we should have a diet where everything is at play and I can make the choices that I want because more levers, more bullets in my gun, I can get sort of a better health outcome. And I think it's actually quite, it's quite tempting to think that way. Um, the catch for me, though, is that when it comes to you know real life, humans are really flawed in actually being able to perform that optimization. So 
you know, ideally you'd be able to make the choice over the full set of options of, of diets you could choose from and maximize health. But at the end of the day, humans crave fatty, sugary foods, calorie rich foods. And so if, if everything goes and, and you're allowed to make the choice, we tend to not make the, the, the best choice. And so I actually am a, quite a promoter of sort of more restrictive or rules-based diets in certain ways for health. This I love this point. I actually didn't know you you did your thesis in this space because I my thesis was actually in combinatorial optimization as well. So oh, there we go. Well, mine was in continuous optimization. So <laughs> yeah, but yeah, that 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 logic makes a ton of sense, right? the The more levers you have available to pull, the more likely you are to be able to get to a perfect outcome. And the only reason to restrict is to work around our lack of willpower. Because I think if you're doing diet properly, it's probably on autopilot to some extent. Otherwise, yeah, you, you're going to end up, you know, snacking, eating the wrong foods, eating the wrong portions or ratios of foods. Very, very hard to control the biological impulses in a world where all high nutrient density, fatty, sugary foods are available in abundance. Yeah, agreed. I might just add one thing. It's not just willpower. It's also information. So, you know, you might be able to avoid eating a certain thing. You might have all the willpower in the world, but you might not have fully full information about what that actually contributes to your, your health outcome. So even if you were a cold rational optimizer, you might not have the, all the information you need to perform the optimization. Yeah. And actually this conversation might be a good example, potentially cutting out meat, you know, you, you love meat, but you can, you can will yourself to cut it out. Potentially there are hidden consequences that you're not aware of. Yeah. Yeah, Definitely. I've got another lens which probably agrees with yours. If you think about this from an evolution-first point of view, then you can probably assume a safe bet for health with humans is to do whatever we evolved to do, right? Millions of years of evolution, its primary purpose driving us to, at the very least, be able to reproduce effectively. So getting to the age of reproduction and maybe raising our children. What happens after that? Evolution doesn't care about too much. So, you know, it's it's not a perfect system if you're trying to live for 100 years healthily, but I think it's a good starting point. And if you take that lens, the definitive answer is that eating meat makes sense because we've been, the, we, we have strong evidence that humans have been eating meat for at the very least tens of thousands of years, maybe longer, and take this with a grain of salt. But I, I've seen, you know, studies, reports, to be honest, I first got this from Joe Rogan, where there are stories of particular groups of primates in the, in the jungle who will actually fashion spheres out of sticks and go hunt animals. We definitely know that they will you know, regardless of the spheres, that that might be a bit of a stretch. I did Google it before this, and it does seem to be true. But even if you cut out the spheres, we know they'll eat, you know, small rodents, small, you know, primates. There's definitely a meat element to their diet. And for humans in particular, we know for a long time, we've been, you know, hunting animals, eating them. They've been a very large part of the diets of many, many populations. Yeah, I definitely agree with that point. We're, we're... <laughs> You know, people people often call to the argument of, oh, but our ancestors used to do this and that. And I think it's quite tempting often to just accept what what's said and not really fact check it because it's quite a hard thing to fact check. But in the, in this one, I did do a bit of fact checking and it's it's totally true. So in fact, I think that the latest is that we think our ancestors have been eating meat for millions of, of years. And, and the way we know this is... There are two things. One is by looking at the teeth of human ancestors. So we've got you know skull records and mouth records, 
of human ancestors. And so, so we know what the, the, the sort of pattern of the teeth are. And then on the other end, looking at bones of, of herbivorous animals and being able to match the scratch marks and the bite marks on those bones with human teeth. And so, you know, if, if it was extremely, extremely rare for us to eat meat, we would find almost no bones like that. But we actually find several bones, you know, a lot of bone records with human-shaped bite marks in them or scratch marks, um, which proves that it goes back, you know, a really long way that we've been eating meat. And of course, we can date the bones because of we can use carbon dating. And so we actually have a very good record of, of our ancestors eating meat going millions of years back. So super deeply ingrained. 2.5 million was the, 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 long, the, the longest, the, the most accepted number, I think, that I found. So it's a, it's a pretty, pretty big time frame and it feels quite drastic to make a, a quick cut to something that's been, you know, in our evolutionary history for so long. Yeah. And it, it's definitely, you know, if you told me it was a few thousand, then I would question how much evolution can play out in that time. Because for evolution to work, you need selective pressure. You need the people who are engaging in the, you know, who have the suboptimal set of genes to be dying. And, you know, the, the more quickly and easily they die without reproducing, the, the faster you'll get that gene kind of permeating through the population. And, you know, given we have long-term vegetarian populations, for example, in India, I, I suspect the selective pressure is not that strong. But if you're telling me it's 2.5 millions of, millions of years, then I can definitely see there being a strong genetic component to this. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And it's just, just really about what we know. Again, we're not doctors, we're not nutrition scientists. And if, if we were, there's so much disagreement in the space. So I, I just think the space is it's just full of, of unknown things. Yeah. So I guess the, you know, both the lenses which we took say that at the very least, a diet which includes some meat seems to be a safe path, you know, both from the point of view of the optimal diet, if one existed out there, probably leverages everything that's available. And secondly, we, we know we've been eating meat for a very, very long time. And therefore, we've probably to some degree evolved for that to be you know, a core part of whatever we need. I think the other lens here is unknown unknowns of making a drastic change. Like you said, if we have been eating meat as part of our diet for a very long time and we just cut it out quickly and completely, then what are we missing out on that we don't know about that can only be obtained from animal sources? And we already know there are some things. So vitamin B12, for example, we know you can only get that from animal products, whether that's meat or dairy or eggs, which means if you're a vegan today, you have to supplement it. If you don't get enough, it's really bad. Your brain and your spinal cord begin to degenerate irreversibly. Um, and we've only known about B12 widely enough to be telling people to supplement it for you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And if we go another 10, 20, 30 years into the future from now, then I am very high confidence there are going to be more B12s, right? The, the concept of popular veganism hasn't been around long enough. We don't have large enough populations to quickly determine if there are nutrients that matter that we care about and that are really important. And a lot of these don't play out. You know, if you're if you cut off vitamin B12, you probably won't experience symptoms bad enough that you're at the doctor trying to figure out what's wrong for maybe five or ten years. You your body has reserves you can rely on for a long time. You will gradually deteriorate. The point at which your hands are trembling and it's bad enough that you're like, 
I should go to a doctor and figure it out. Could be a very long time. Oh, so the so is, uh, mm-hmm. Sorry, I mean, I was asking you personally as a as a vegetarian or yeah. now vegan. How do you how do you manage these things? How do you manage B twelve? So as a vegetarian, it was fine because I would get you know from from dairy products. Even now, you know, when I say I'm vegan, I am vegan with a with a caveat that my family grows they, they've got backyard chickens, or my parents do, and so I'll get eggs from them. I'll occasionally supplement with cruelty-free milk from a, it's basically like a cattle rescue farm run by Indians. So I know they're, they're worshiping the cows every day and, and treating them well, but that that's kind of how I compromise. I, I find some, what I call cruelty-free ways to get uh, some animal products into my diet, because personally, I believe it's a fairly important hedge against some of these long-term downside health risks. Because many of them can be irreversible. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're you're the first person I know, I think, at least knowingly, that is literally drinking milk from the gods. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that's a that, that's a fairly scary one, and I mean, I think there are lots of other things people worry about. B twelve, I, I hear a lot of. I hear that iron is one. You know, plant based sources can be full of iron, but apparently we don't absorb as well. And so, I mean, you have to eat quite a substantial amount of nuts, seeds, legumes, and so on to get enough. I think zinc is a similar story. Omega-3 fatty acids, I think, you know, we need those and you have to eat black seeds, walnuts, chia seeds, a a bunch of stuff to get to get to sufficient amounts of, of all of those things. Well, even with those with, with omega-3, and this is one of those, I guess, you know, fringe frontier science cases, which is starting to emerge now that... You know, many, many people are deficient in omega-3 and it has implications for heart health. And the, the plant-based sources, even though they're, they're promoted as an alternative, actually pretty much useless from a bioavailability point of view. So you know, I, I went down this rabbit hole trying to find good vegan sources of omega-3. And from memory, the, the difference between getting omega-3 from a fish and through getting it through flax seeds or walnuts is 5% versus like 100% in terms of the bioavailability. I got flaxseed oil, which is already highly processed, and did the maths on how much I would need to have every day, and it was like three tablespoons. And at that point, I was like, there's definitely downside risk to eating three tablespoons of you know processed flaxseed oil every day. I'm better off just you know going back and finding some alternative, which yeah, I actually this, haven't this... been able to find. Fish seems to be the only really good source. Interesting. Wow. I mean, this this points a finger at right at one of the big misconceptions that I that I know of in this space, which is people avoiding meat, looking at the back of the, like the ingredients list or the nutritional information of sort of an alternative product, and kind of doing the maths and adding things up, and feeling like they're getting everything they need, not understanding that there are there are sort of nuances to each of those line items relating to bioavailability and like a particular structure that actually do matter. A big, a big one along that line is is protein. So protein is one word we use for a very large number of molecules, and it's very easy to look at the back of you know some vegetarian patties or something and say, okay, that's how much protein I'm getting, and I think this is enough. But what what sort of actually that protein is made up of can be vastly different according to different sources, and I think this is a this is a super controversial one. We don't really even know how much protein people should be having. Some people put on very large numbers per kilogram of body mass. Some people have done very small numbers. And then, uh, you know, as importantly, what type of protein? What What is that protein made of? I think my, my read is that a lot of people who don't have animal products supplement protein or at least get it from sources, which um, I personally think are fairly risky. So, you know, 
protein shakes that I know have very often been shown to contain other things like heavy metals and you know a bunch of stuff. How do you, how do you manage how do you manage that or how do you think people should manage that as a a non meat eater? Yeah, the the protein one's really interesting and something I think about a lot too. So you're right. the The bioavailability is a really big component here, and you know, just as quick basics, there you know, protein which humans construct is made up of amino acids, and there's a certain number. I think it's ten from memory. I think it's I think it's more I think more like twenty. I can look at the number. But uh, yeah, there, there's a certain number of essential amino acids which are which are needed to you know synthesize muscle, and the ones which you're getting from different types of foods are different amino acids. So grains have a certain type or a certain set, legumes have a certain set, and you need to eat all of them together. They need to pair up in the right ratios, and only then will you get protein or will you be able to synthesize muscle, for example. And Yeah, and one, just by the way, I looked up the yeah. number. It's, it's 20 amino acids and nine of them are essential. Nine, nine essential ones, yeah. yep. And if you're if you look in the back of a package, they will just label whatever amino acids they have in there as protein. So if you if you get a can of chickpeas, it will say, I don't know, depending on how big it is, maybe nine grams of protein. And if you get a bag of wheat or rice, it'll have protein on the back too. But you can't add them up. It's not, you know, nine plus five, I've got 14. It's actually, you know, part of them need to overlap, they need to combine. And so what you're actually getting is some total amount less than each of them individually, which can be very misleading, like you said. And you have to make some trade-offs here. So supplements, like you said, totally unregulated in the protein space, but also in general, right? Even when I buy B12 supplements or if you buy any kind of vitamin D, in most countries, in fact, I think every country, this is unregulated. And there are a lot of private companies which will go do a private lab tests of all kinds of supplements. And you can very, very easily see that, you know, the active ingredient might be 70% of what they claim. They're contaminated with all kinds of other material. Many of them, which are in oil form, are rancid. So they've, they've oxidized with the air. And so not only are they less bioavailable and less useful, they're also potentially you know causing you some level of harm. And I have no doubt that many of the protein supplements you find out there have similar issues. Then you've got problems where if you're on a restrictive diet, your sources of protein are very limited. So as a vegan, if you want to get high amounts of protein, you have to eat a lot of soy, for example, you know, tofu, concentrated soy products, which there's a bit of, it's a bit controversial on whether or not too much soy is actually bad for you. But if you want to take the, the safe lens of, you know, hedge my bets to do everything in moderation, then eating two or three servings of soy every day is probably a bit risky. And then separately, you you run into this other issue where because you're eating a, a mostly plant-based diet and you're trying to combine amino acids to get protein across a lot of plant-based sources, you're necessarily increasing your carbohydrate intake as well, right? So if I want to eat grains and legumes together to get a complete set of amino acids for protein, then you know maybe I'm eating rice and chickpeas. But both of those have very high carbohydrate content on their own. And now my total calorie intake goes up, my total carbohydrate intake goes up, and my ratios are off. Yeah, it was basically every word that came out of your mouth there just you know fills me with sort of fear and anxiety about this decision. And it, it, it sort of makes it very clear to me that if I had to take the whole conversation on like a Maslow's hierarchy of needs perspective, the, for most people, the health one would come first. 
And you'd have to be pushed really hard to make significant health sacrifices for the environment and for the other things we talked about. And if, from, from that lens, I can, I can very clearly see why, despite you know, building this burning platform that we did beforehand, you could still come down, as I do, to this health issue and suddenly feel, oh, you know what, even given all those other things, this is still a very scary trade-off to make. And I, I can still imagine coming out at the back end of it and deciding, I need meat. I need some meat in, in my diet. Yeah, I, I fully agree. that That's pretty much where I've landed. And it's why at the beginning I said I am irrationally averse to eating meat. Because I think I think the line of rationality here is if you're willing to make an exception. And personally, for me, it's just something I haven't done in so, so long, apart from by accident every now and then, that it's, a, it's an irrational line I just don't feel comfortable stepping over, but actually think I should probably do it from a pure health point of view. And maybe the lab-grown meat at some point in the future is where I do that. And for now, I find, you know, the, the best cruelty-free ways I can to get eggs and dairy into my diet. Yeah, I think that makes sense. But but also, like, even within the, the framework of, like, the health perspective, we have to make sure, we have to make sure we're really comparing like for like. And we talk about not eating meat and what are the alternatives. I think we also sometimes forget that even the type of meat we're eating now is not what our ancestors was eating a lot of the time, right? Eating some bologna is not the same as, you know, eating a, a springbok that I caught with myself on, on the savannah. Yeah, and I think we haven't touched on this yet, but there is some very conclusive evidence that some types of meat are bad for you. The World Health Organization came out and said, I forget the exact numbers, but processed meats, salami, sausages, things like that, will definitely increase your risk of cancer. Red meats will increase your risk of cancer. Now, we, we don't know if that's a product of the way meat is produced today. Processing it is definitely not great. But like you said, you know, the, the animals today, they get pumped full of antibiotics, hormones. Uh, they live a highly stressed life. You know, the, the duration of their life from even an internal hormonal chemical point of view is probably quite different to catching something in the wild. And they've been domesticated and bred into animals that are very different from their ancestors, right? They, you know, cows now produce so much milk when they have a calf that it's actually not enough for the calf to drink that milk. Their udders can literally burst or explode because it's so full of milk. And the only way to, you know, relieve that is both having a calf and, you know, us taking the milk or or us taking all of the milk. Yeah. So, I mean, from an from internal consistency perspective, you're right. You know, making the trade-off of, of cutting down meat for meat alternatives should be viewed in the same way as sort of changing meat from what our ancestors ate to a lot of the weird sort of different types of meats we, we eat today. I think it, you, you can be quite different. I, I looked up a stat from, actually I haven't heard of these, these folk, but the, the, the research looked reliable, which is Pomona College. And they did a nutritional profile of meat today versus in the past. And they found basically free-range chickens have 21% less total fat and 30% less saturated fat and 28% less calories than a factory farm counterpart. And that's just one example of a chicken. It, it will be so very true across all of the different classes of meat we eat. And this is not even talking about processing. This is just the, the farming. Uh, when it comes to, to processed foods, I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen a, a McDonald's burger patty process and how that gets made, but... It, do, it doesn't look like food until basically it's in the burger and in front of you. At no point in the in the process <laughs> does it look any does it resemble food of of any type. And so, 
that processing one is huge. And, and when we talk about the UN looking at meat consumption and health outcomes, the number of confounding variables in that calculation are just enormous. A lot of meat is consumed in the form of, you know, burger patty sludge. And it's not a like-for-like like comparison with, you know, an organically produced piece of steak. Yeah. And so I think the, again, the, the conclusion here without a lot of data to go off is in the absence of, you know, evidence and data around what is contained in the food we're eating, a safe bet is maybe stick to something that's as close as what it was, you know, a few thousand years ago or, you know, even longer, regardless of whether it's the optimal choice. I suspect it might be safe to assume that it contains less downside risk in that it's probably not terrible for you. I, I agree with that. And I think the other, the other lens, I think it kind of maybe gets you to the exact same place is, you know, we, we don't know what overall diet is the best for people, best for their overall health. But what we do know is certain facts about what's not good for you. And there are many diets out there that say very different things, but have certain overlaps. And one of the framings I, I, I like here, I read it in Peter Thier's recent book, Outlive, which gives the point of view that all diets have certain things in common. And those include cutting out the junk. So very high processed foods, almost always a bad thing. Very high sugar content and refined carb foods, very much, very much a good thing. And so even with just that lens, like let's just remove the processing. And uh, probably I would consider processing before the point of death as well counts. So yeah, things that have been pumped with antibiotics and hormones and being forced to stand still in the cage so that they can grow faster. All of that I think counts. And then I think you're left with at least a very strong directional prescription. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's a good wrap up of this one. So where where do you think we've landed across all four? We had the ethics, the environment, the economic and the health. Yeah. And we had those others that which I don't think deserve mention, which was your identity fitting into crowd and sort of like cultural factors. I, I think deliberately those shouldn't be factored into the decision making itself as far as possible. Where have we landed? Well, I mean, I think the the first the first three, ethics, environment, economics, I'm I'm more convinced than I was that this is this is a very serious problem and there is a, a lot of good reason to fairly drastically reduce total meat consumption or at least shift away from the worst offenders. That includes factory farmed meat and it probably includes a lot of beef. To, to sort of smaller animals. How, do you, how does that sit with you? Yeah, I think that's about right. I think, I think it's indisputable that yeah, ethically it's wrong, factory farming in particular. Environmentally, it's definitely bad for the environment and economically we're inefficiently using these resources. The approach across all three of them is probably on a spectrum. You know, you're never going to be able to get to zero as an individual across all of them. And so it's probably more about damage minimization. And with the ethical one in particular, thinking about, I guess, that question of moral consistency for yourself and where you draw that line on your own, and then doing your best to minimize the impact you're having, which, like you said, reduce beef in particular. Uh, and then maybe across the other, the other two categories, trying to cut down just total total meat consumption and maybe other types of animal products as well. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And what you mentioned, you know, future alternatives, lab-grown alternatives, things like that, those seem to solve a lot of the problems you just mentioned. So personally, I'm, I'm quite optimistic about the outcome on that front. Yeah, I think the, I mentioned this a little bit before, but the, the difference between approaching this rationally and getting wrapped up in the identity perspective on it is if you're willing to make an exception 
So, you know, if you if you're stranded in a in a city or in a jungle or whatever it is, and you know, there's no other way to to get food, most people will probably go eat meat, even if they think of themselves as pure vegans, if they're at the point of starvation. But maybe in a less extreme version where you're not going to die, and it probably rationally does make sense for you to do it once. If you are willing to do it, I suspect that means you're approaching it rationally. Whereas the type of person who says, I will never do it unless it's, you know, a life or death situation, then that's a bit of a, you know, signal to yourself that, hey, maybe I'm not being totally rational about this entire topic. And I should reconsider whether or not, you know, I, I want to change my internal compass around this. And I, I can definitely say I'm, I'm in that pocket of irrational here. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I buy that framing. I don't, I don't think you're being too hard on yourself once again. Yeah, I don't think you're, you're. I don't think many people have this sort of longer conversation and, and the debate about these various topics. The one that we haven't obviously summed up is is the health one. For for me, this is the kicker. This is the thing that really uh, I place as my first priority. And for that perspective, I think there's so many unknown unknowns and so many compelling reasons to include some level of animal proteins and animal products in a diet and then for that reason i think it supersedes the other stuff for me personally and so i'm i'm definitely going to continue eating meat potentially not exactly as i do i mean i'm already doing it in moderation i absolutely get nothing from factory farms very little processed junk meat but i i, I think i will continue doing that with potentially a slight slight reduction and maybe more consciously move away from some of the worst offenders, you know, beef in, in particular. But beyond that, I think, I think despite all the, just making me feel, feel, feel guilty for, for being a, a human, but I'm going to keep on, keep on eating meat as I do. Yeah. And I think it's, it's a pretty reasonable approach, at least until we get, you know, either better, more conclusive science around nutrition or you know, better alternatives. So lab grown meat. Yeah. I am. Um, I'm, I'm waiting with bated breath to, to sink my teeth into a lab grown steak. I'm actually pretty hungry now. I don't think I'll, I'll eat meat. I think I'll probably go get myself a, a salad or something. <laughs> I think that was a good app. Let's call it. Let's call it. <laughs>